East Timor, now officially named Timor-Leste, has been home to thousands of New Zealand soldiers off and on since 1999. But the peacekeepers who went in to help bring independence and went back to combat intense civil strife have now left. The hope is this time it will be for good. This month, New Zealand peacekeeping soldiers left Timor-Leste the way many of their predecessors came in 13 years ago on a C-130 Hercules aircraft. The soldiers are leaving because the Timorese government says it's time for them to go and because the Security Council of the United Nations says their job is done. Security is uh, stable in the country. Crime is very low. In Delhi here, you can walk any time in the streets. These are <coughs> monumental achievements. I'm Eric Frickberg, and Insight travels to Timor-Leste to consider New Zealand's role in the nation over 13 years and to ask what future lies ahead for Timor-Leste. Timor-Leste played a big part in New Zealand military planning for years, despite being a tiny sliver of Asian land hitherto rarely noticed. Widely criticised decolonisation by Portugal, an Indonesian invasion, bloody rebellion and fierce repression brought too much bad news for the rest of the world to endlessly ignore. Then over 200 years of hard effort here at home, and with bitter and good experiences around the world, we have learned that the world works better when differences are resolved by the force of argument rather than the force of arms. The support of the American President Bill Clinton helped facilitate Australian-led intervention with New Zealand in second-ranked position. So began in 1999 an era of checkpoints on the roads, the sorties on foot into the bush, and patrols through towns by Vietnam-era armoured personnel carriers, heavy-caliber machine guns swivelling on top, tank-like tracks grinding at already ravaged country roads. An Australian, Major General Peter Cosgrove, commanded the force that confronted hostile pro-Indonesian militiamen. While ever we are right on our toes, it'll be difficult for the militia to actually mount a substantive threat across the border without very significant danger to themselves. And that's the way I'd like it to be. We're not actually here looking to shoot people. We're here to protect these Timorese. And we'll do that by being extremely active and vigilant. New Zealand had responsibility for the southern part of the country, hard up against the Indonesian border. Their battalion commander was Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Burnett. There has been no problem since we've arrived here, uh, but I've got no doubt it's because of our presence. Because we are here, uh, we are able to provide the security that people are looking for. There is certainly a threat that still can be posed to us. There are still militia groups who are operating over in West Timor who are training to one degree or another and who certainly do pose a threat to us. Gradually, the soldiers restored order, but not before four had died three from traffic accidents on the country's dilapidated network of mountain roads. Then came news New Zealand hadn't heard for decades. She and her family are very proud of their son. They say he was honoured to be able to help in East Timor, 
that he expected to come home, but that he had told them of the dangers involved in his assignment. The then Prime Minister Helen Clark, after speaking to the mother of Private Leonard Manning, who was killed by pro-Indonesian militia in the year 2000. Her predecessor, Jenny Shipley, also spoke. When I deployed the New Zealand troops to East Timor, I wished them Godspeed, but I must say I feared in my heart that this day could come. I offer my personal sympathy to the family, the friends and the fellow soldiers of Private Manning. He died fighting for freedom, and that is something that we all can always be proud of. But over the next year or so, conditions gradually improved. Rebel militia either laid down their weapons, were captured or killed, or fled to Indonesia. Refugees returned from West Timor to rebuild their lives. Two years after they arrived, the soldiers saw the territory hold its first real election. In stark contrast with the agony of previous years, the mood was joyous. He said that the, the, the vote is important for heads because it's to choose a, something new for a country like that. He said it is good for him to take a new, new country for him. After that vote, East Timor became Timor-Leste, an independent state, and the United Nations departed, along with the New Zealand peacekeepers. Timor-Leste took control of its own security, and New Zealand and other countries congratulated themselves on a job well done, a success story, they thought. But just as members of the international community were turning their attention elsewhere, victory in Timor was snatched from their grasp. So now he, he wants to kill everyone in these areas, but we don't want. In, in this, this area we have responsibility, but we don't want to make like this. We don't want. In 2006, splits in Timor's government and army broke open and the police abandoned their posts after nine of them were massacred on the streets of Dili by soldiers of their own army. With no police to stop them, gangs took control of the town. Like, like, like the militia 1999, like this. You don't want peace, you just we want, want to fight. We want peace in here. But like this, peace not make anything. Long What's wrong? I want to know. I want to know. Why not make like this? An Australian journalist reporting from Dili, John Harker Farrell, witnessed savage attacks. We uh, were driving down the road to go and do a humanitarian story uh, further up the hills. When we arrived here, there was a standoff between two large gangs of armed youths. After a period, it broke into actual violence, first attacking uh, people that were travelling down the road on motorcycles and cars, and then after that, actual violence between the two gangs. The Australian soldiers then intervened. Various other people that tried to pass through the roadblocks were attacked depending on their uh, local ethnicity. In the second crisis of 2006, gangs carved up Dili among themselves, looting, settling old scores, launching tit-for-tat arson attacks and waging proxy wars on behalf of feuding politicians. Smoke from scores of arson attacks billowed over the city. About 150,000 people were driven from their homes and New Zealand troops were brought back in. Their commander was Major Eugene Whakahoihoi. We are concerned with what, which is what's happening around here. Uh, it is still in our backyard. 
we believe that we still have a role to play being an international citizen. So again, we're concerned and we want to do our best for the people. Like their predecessors seven years earlier, the Anzac contingent secured first the airport, then Dili Town Centre, and then the road between the two. Later they fanned out into the suburbs and on to other towns. And, like their predecessors, they were successful. The violence died down, flared anew but less intensively in 2008, then stopped altogether. By this year the peacekeeping force had little real peacekeeping to do. The senior national officer was Lieutenant Colonel Steve Watts. You know, one of our nations um, had a problem. They asked for some help. We were willing to put New Zealand Defence Force people and police and other people over here. Um, for six years we've worked hard with the international community and certainly with the government of Timor-Leste to work to a, a solution that the government, the local or the host government is looking for um, and got to that point. So, you know, six years of hard work. Um, number of rotations and the mandate's complete. The United Nations and the international community now are saying we're all good to go. Proof of that came this year when elections were held and peacekeepers weren't asked even once to help deal with any problems. By the end of October, they'd put away their guns and stopped going on patrol and on the 8th of November flew out of the country altogether. And that was the right thing to do, according to the Timorese government, according to the New Zealand government, and according to the Security Council of the United Nations itself. A delegation from that body was led by Baso Sanku of South Africa. We believe that this is one of the success stories of the engagement of the United Nations in accompanying member states to achieve peace and stability. And you cannot put a price tag to that. Despite the departure of the peacekeepers, some people will remain working on specific projects, but not as peacekeepers, as aid workers or professional consultants. Five soldiers, for instance, will stay on to help train the Timorese army. Recruits of the Defence Force, the FFDTL, are receiving training at a rifle range at a base in Metanaro, east of Dili. These are recruits of Timor's tiny navy learning marksmanship. Overseeing them is Captain Damaso Maria Bello. This is uh, FFDTL, but they are from the navy component. They are uh, full-time of the uh, uh, navy, and also some we say, uh, like a, we have contract. Every two years we have uh, renew their contract. If they are good attitude, good behavior, they can carry on with the, their contract. How good are they at shooting? Yeah, as you know that we are a young country, but they're not too bad. Besides learning marksmanship, soldiers need rest and recreation on their days off. That means helping build a soccer field. A New Zealand soldier, Warrant Officer Manu Ferguson, explains what that involves. The commander wanted uh, a grandstand, basically, for their soccer field. The Timorese love their soccer, Tibi Baller, they call it. Yeah, it's just a, basically a grandstand. Took a while to plan. They got the Timorese to do a welding course, and then they got their carpenters, you know, to build the actual structure. They've got welders, they've got carpenters building on it.
construction work was overseen by an Australian Army engineer, Peter Jeffrey. The um, Timorese engineers, they've done courses to learn how to weld. So now this is the continuation of that training. Once we finish this, we're going to start making a really large water tank of 90,000 litres from uh, concrete and steel. Elsewhere work by police officers will continue near the inland town of Ailieu. They're involved in a community policing project. Inspector Pat Hancock from Palmerston North is at work in a tiny village. I will speak to this meeting uh, a little bit later on to discuss uh, community policing. Community, uh, community policing, policing is intended to bring acceptance of the police force in communities which sometimes saw them as sectarian and sometimes brutal. The village chief at this meeting, Mario Vieira da Costa, had no doubts about what was at stake. There is a two police force here, the, the uh, normal police. Uh, this one we can categorize kick and punch. The other police, is, which is the community policing, which is the, our friends from the New Zealand that near they work with. So near they working with us. Uh, we are not look after for the kick and uh, kick and punch, but we create the friend within the villages. The police and soldiers staying on will maintain a New Zealand link but won't come close to matching the scale of earlier interventions. Essentially, Timor-Leste is on its own, solving its own problems. Timor-Leste is an intensely religious country. Delhi Bay is overlooked by a huge statue of Jesus and the mainly Catholic churches are packed on Sundays. Families in their best clothes flock to church on Sundays, providing a happy, positive image. But there are dark sides to life in Timor. There are gangs of young men, bored by unemployment and practiced in martial arts, who tag their identities and their turf with signs on the roadside. There are clusters of people who gather night after night and gamble large sums of money on the outcome of the cruel sport of cockfighting. There are vast quantities of litter and uncollected rubbish hurled into dried up riverbeds. And there are the diseases of poverty. Dan Murphy is a voluntary doctor from Iowa who's been treating people here for 14 years. Tuberculosis is overwhelming. We also are number three in the world in malnutrition. So that means 58% of the children in the last study under five are stunted in growth. So that means they're not healthy, they get sick all the time, the hygiene isn't good, the nutrition isn't good, the infrastructure's not there, so people are sick. Apart from TB, anything else? Yeah. Malaria, diarrhea, pneumonia, skin infections, rheumatic heart disease, leprosy, no cardiosis. I'm just saying what we have right here now. You know, we have so many different nutritional problems and infectious problems. We're, we have all the tropical diseases and all the western diseases, and usually in advanced state because people can't afford to go to health care. Dr. Murphy's negative view is widely shared. 
But there are positive stories. There are more children at school, for instance, and infant mortality rates have been halved. Madalena de Jesus is a midwife at a small settlement in Timor's mountainous interior, helping to deliver babies safely without the luxury of advanced equipment. About the equipment here, this is help us. So we understand that the equipment in the help us it is different from the clinic. But I think that the equipment here is sufficient because every month we have the report, we make it and we send it to the national. And whatever we feel it is less here, then we will request that they always give us. Does she have any help or does she work on her own? Are there nurses? Are there doctors? We are working based on what we are studying. Here we have one midwife and one nurse. And what kind of training have they had? We have attended the training for immunization and also about epilepsy and how to take care of the pregnant women and also family planning. The midwife's success adds to one of Timor's big challenges, a huge population of young people. Forty percent of Timor-Leste's population is under 15, two-thirds under 25. Unemployment is over 40% among urban male youths. Most people live off subsistence agriculture. New Zealand's ambassador to Timor-Leste, Tony Faltua, says the country's budget doesn't always reflect this reality. You know, there's something like 95% of people here are farmers, yet there's um, something like only 3 to 5% of the budget is spent on that. Um, how they, it's, it's, it's the lowest in, in a lot of um, uh, LDC countries. So it's a, it's a real challenge. But at the end of the day, it's uh, for the government to decide. Tony Fautua points out another tough problem for the government, how to spend earnings from the only real revenue it has, the steady stream of royalties coming in from companies extracting oil and gas from under the sea between Timor and Australia. Essentially, Timor-Leste receives most of its income from its oil fund. The oil fund has around about 10.6 billion in a trust fund that sits in New York, of which about 3% is released uh, each year into the budget here, spent on various programs. Other countries have squandered money. Nauru wasted earnings from huge phosphate deposits, and Tony Fatua says Timor-Leste is determined not to do the same thing with its oil money. But keeping annual spending to just 3% of the oil fund carries risks as well as benefits. The government needs to make some, some big decisions in terms of tapping into that resource to utilise for a lot of the challenges they have here. Uh, they're focusing on infrastructure, they're spending a lot of money, they're prioritising uh, infrastructure spending as part of the strategic development plan, which is a 20-year plan. But uh, there's also some challenges on education. Um, health, uh, social indicators are, are really need to be picked up. The government needs to sort of have that support. And, um, but uh, like I said, uh, the constitution limits that only 3% of that money of that uh, oil fund can be spent on the budget.
Timor-Leste's economic problems are forward-looking ones. There's a retrospective problem as well, the failure to punish people for atrocities in the past, including officially designated crimes against humanity. An Amnesty International campaigner, Amanda Bryden, urges the authorities to make sure the perpetrators are brought to justice. Over 300 people have been indicted for crimes against humanity and these serious human rights violations. And they're continuing to evade justice in Indonesia. And so we've got the Indonesian authorities who have refused to cooperate with the UN um, sponsored justice system and are not going to extradite their nationals who are suspected of these crimes against humanity. Of those that have been prosecuted in Indonesia, they've all been acquitted. It's been severely criticised as being a fundamentally flawed process. According to Timor's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there were 18,600 unlawful killings or kidnappings between 1974 and 1999. In addition, a United Nations inquiry found 38 people died and 69 were injured in the disturbances of 2006. Most crimes have been investigated by UN teams, but the special representative of the Secretary-General, Finn Reskin-Nielsen of Denmark, says investigation is where it begins and ends. UNMIT's mandate with regard to serious crimes committed in 1999 is limited to the investigation of the 396 cases that were identified back in 2007. Out of those 397 cases, we have completed well over 300, and all of those cases have been handed over to the National Prosecution Service, and it is uh, a responsibility of the national institutions to take it from there. Timor's government has made it clear it wants to look forward, not backward, and to forge a positive relationship with its powerful Indonesian neighbour. But Amanda Bryden of Amnesty International says this argument doesn't work. Why we need justice is that if you hold the individuals accountable, um, you really do end this tradition of impunity. So not only does that deter others, it allows whole communities to move on rather than being held collectively responsible. Reports written since Timor became independent suggest the push for justice evaporated for several reasons. Lack of money blame-shifting between the Timorese government and the UN and lack of cooperation from Indonesia. There was also an uncomfortable awareness that some unlawful killings between 1974 and 1999 were perpetrated by resistance fighters themselves. The result has been many people escaping justice, including those accused of a massed killing in a church building in Suai, where New Zealand troops later took control. All these years later, New Zealand soldiers are aware of Timor's problems, but know it's not within their power to fix them. It's not their job. Peacekeeping is. And even that role has been winding down. Street patrols have been abandoned as unnecessary, and there was sometimes little to do except work out in the gym and provide some entertainment when people came to visit. All this has happened before. The troops pulled out when Timor became independent after the 2001 elections. But they had to come back in after the troubles of 2006. 
The risk that this might happen again has been considered by military planners and discounted. New Zealand's senior national officer, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Watts, explains why. I guess in fairness it's possible, but I'd like to think it's not probable, um, particularly with the amount of bilateral arrangements put in place. Um, some of the more recent speeches from both the President and the Prime Minister have clearly acknowledged the problems of 2006. They clearly acknowledged the issues of 2008. It pains them. Um, they acknowledge the international help um, that they've got over the six years. They acknowledge the good work that their own institutions have done over the six years, but they're also very quickly to acknowledge that there's a hard road ahead and their eyes are wide open. Back at his clinic, Dr Dan Murphy is less chipper, remaining uncertain about Timor's chances of achieving long-term stability. To tell you the truth, I remain sceptical. I would say 50-50. Why? It doesn't take much to start something. You know, when you're in a poor community that has no future, little issues can just boom, you set off a, a conflagration, and so the whole thing could go down the drain again. Most people have no job and they don't have much to do. So they're sitting around and they've got all this testosterone pumping through their veins and uh, you know, somebody calls a name or they misinterpret an event or something and before you know it, we've got people hitting each other or you know throwing a rock or, oh, let's set a fire to something. And it just builds from that. You know, and it's really hard to control all of that. This negative view is not shared by the officer who directly commanded the last troop rotation, Major Tim Tuartini. He's optimistic about the future. I know that there's probably uh, people that are saying it's a 50-50 call, this, and that, you know, there's sort of the naysayers out there. Um, Timorese, the, the country itself has been, you know, they, it's hard fought to where they are now. They have really have put a lot on the line to be where they are now through their history. They, and surely don't they deserve the chance to at least see if they can do it themselves? Um, and I think that's important. It should be about Timorese making decisions for Timorese. OK, potentially it might not be how we envisage it or how we see it, it should happen, but is it really up to us? Um, it's up to them to make those decisions and work those through, and you've got to give them the opportunity. This was an unashamedly New Zealand mission. The soldiers saying Kiura bro to people on the street and performing the haka often. Before long, the Timorese responded with a Kiura bro of their own and gathered to watch whenever a haka was performed. Army commanders say this open approach won popular support wherever the New Zealand soldiers went. New Zealand's commitment to Timor costs five lives and, since 2006, $100 million. The soldiers who went might not have fixed all of Timor's problems or come close, but there appears to be no one who thinks they didn't leave it better than they found it. I am Eric Frickberg, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philip Tolley with technical production by William Saunders.